You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Hi, you're listening to Sprogcast with me, Mark Harris and with Karen Hall. This is episode 43 and we've got lots of voices for you to listen to today. We've got Lauren Parker. She's going to talk to us about what doulas do. Uh, Karen chats with birth photographer Joe Robertson and I have a conversation with midwife and author Ellie Durant about her first novel which is out now published by Pinter and Martin. On the theme of which, we are delighted to be sponsored by Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction at pinterandmartin.com. We also now collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash sprogcast, where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts and other exciting rewards. Patrons can find out more about last month's author, Mel Scott, with whom we currently have two long-ish interviews on the Patreon page. Um, you can support the show from as little as one US dollar per month. So if you can stretch to two dollars, we'll send you a badge. Oh, yeah, you'll get a badge. And, and of course, there's a load of stuff on that page that you don't have to subscribe to get contact uh, to get access to. Uh, yes. I say a load of stuff. You know, there's Mel's interview. Uh, I think Dennis's interview is available for anyone that just goes to the page. So, Well, we're just basically using it for all the stuff that we can't fit in without yeah. this podcast lasting three and a half hours every month. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. Do you know, if you're in the car or if you're at home listening to this, come on, sponsor us. Do not do this while driving. No, don't do this while driving. Yeah, so it's under two pound. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. We were going to do an episode about doulas, but I don't f- think that our content is entirely about doulas, but we'd ha- we've got a little bit about doulas. Uh, we've got a doula in there. I know, Lauren, a busy woman. Yes, well, aren't we all? <laughs> we were just talking off air, weren't we, about me going to Bristol tonight and uh, doing a two-day training and then coming back for a day and going to Leeds for two days. You said, yeah, it's a lot easier for you than it is for me. Because when I have to do things like that, which I do a lot at the moment, it means arranging childcare, making sure that there's food for the guys to eat, that they are capable of cooking, um, enough white school shirts available, um, coming back to a mountain of laundry... You probably don't have to worry about any of that stuff, do you, Mark? I, I kind of resented the assumption. But was it true? Was it yeah. accurate? No, it's completely true. <laughs> so th- there was no resentment, just an acknowledgement that, yep, I, I go away, come back and it's all done. And also that we both live in very, very um, stereotypical households. <laughs> well, the, the listener's going to get a chance to hear my uh, wife speak because we've uh, done an interview together about her reading of Ellie's book. So that's going to be on Patreon within the next uh, week or so. Um, but we have a very uh, traditional relationship that works for us. Yeah, well, the, that's the thing, isn't it? Everybody finds something that works. And I wouldn't say that we were necessarily traditional in every way. But yeah, I'm, I'm a, I have a much more flexible job. So I do end up doing more of the boring stuff. <laughs> no, I get that. It, it does depend on what we mean by traditional, of course, doesn't it? Because, you know, we're fast living in a society where the idea of traditional is shifting and changing all the time, isn't it? The idea of two uh, people uh, kind of living together, uh, bringing up a family together with one earning outside the home that's usually the man, inverted commas, blah, 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 blah. I, I think that's pretty much gone as convention, don't you? So you're saying that we, we are actually now the unconventional ones? 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, all of my all of my adult biological children, uh, bar one, you know, have very blended families. And it's probably more common than not these days. I think it's becoming convention. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, there you go. What about you? What's what's been going on? I'm just here, there, and everywhere doing NCT tutoring and assessments and running study days, and just being all over the place, literally, <laughs> actually, all over the place. Yeah, but I, I, I do get a sense that you're really enjoying yourself. I, I will when it all settles down. Uh, when will that be? I don't know. Possibly never. <laughs> Maybe January. <laughs> well, I hope it does. I hope it does. Hey, th- thinking of uh, up and coming episodes, we, we, we really want people to be uh, sending in questions for the December episode, don't we? Yes, we're going to do a and a in December and we'd absolutely love to have people's questions, which you can either record an audio clip and email it to me, karen at motherworldly.com, or you can send it via the Facebook page. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. I'd, I'd, love, I'd love for quite a few audio clips as well, because it'd be great to have listeners' questions and then the voice of the listener. Yes, it would be. It'll be really nice if we can have a few of those. What kind of questions are we after? Well, I think we're we're leaving it wide open. You can ask us anything you like. We might choose not to answer some of them. Yeah, what kind of questions would you rather not have? Oh, that's a, that one. <laughs> <laughs> now I want some feisty old questions, don't you? I want some questions that kind of are challenging, that that put put us a bit on the back foot. Yeah, well, we can talk about what we do. We can talk about. You know, ask, ask us, so what would you do in this situation? Or what do you think yeah. of this this piece of advice or this protocol? Or why are you constantly travelling when you don't sound like you're enjoying it very much? That kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, I, sometimes when I think about my responses in the birth world, I feel a bit cowardly. Why do you say that? Well, you know the old saying, silence is golden, but sometimes it's just plain yellow. Right. I, I, I never weigh in when it comes to, I very rarely weigh in when it comes to polarised discussions about anything. Mm. And I kind of have my own philosophical reasons for that. I don't think it ever leads to any progress, if I'm totally frank. But sometimes I kind of bite my tongue mm. because I'm thinking, oh, God, that's not going to add anything in terms of moving things forward. Um, but I, I think I could do with just letting loose sometimes. Well, we're inviting people to ask us. Do it. All right. First thing we've got for you today is our interview with Lauren Parker. Karen chatted to her about the work of doulas. I'm Lauren and I am a birth and postnatal doula um, in Manchester. I started out being a doula by myself um, and then in the last year or so I kind of started working with other doulas and we've started like um, a collective if you like and um, working together uh, greater Manchester doulas so yeah that's me. Okay thank you um, so can you first of all start with the real basics and tell us what is a doula? Very basic terms it's kind of supporting women physically emotionally throughout their pregnancies sometimes before before they're even pregnant and then offering support during their birth and Uh, afterwards as well. Okay and who hires doulas? All sorts of women hire doulas. Women who want to get pregnant, want support while they're on their fertility journey, um, women who want support throughout their pregnancies and births and 
after they've had their babies. So it's quite a wide ranging role, isn't it, where you can be there even before the pregnancy starts. But I'm guessing most commonly it's being there in the later stages of preparation for birth and the birth itself. Yeah, definitely. I think most of the people that get in touch with me are in their kind of later stages of pregnancy and they've kind of I don't know, maybe finished work and they're ready to start thinking about their birth a bit more and realise they want a bit more support, maybe just beforehand or maybe for the birth as well. Um, so yeah, definitely more sort of around that last part of pregnancy and for the birth. Okay, so can you talk me through what actually happens when um, somebody contacts you in, in that sort of situation? So people generally get in touch by email. Sometimes I get phone calls and the first step is just to arrange to meet. I think there are lots of questions that people could potentially ask when hiring a doula, but I think ultimately it comes down to, do you connect? Do you have that? Is there, can you trust each other? Do you have a good relationship? So the best way to figure that, figure that out is to just get together. So usually meet over a cup of tea or a coffee and then I'm available for them to ask any questions they have of me to tell me a little bit about their story so far and what they hope from having a doula and then from that they can decide whether or not they want to work with me. And presumably you also decide if you want to work with them. Yeah definitely yeah it's definitely um, a two-way thing. I think that's something that I've I've sort of learned over since I became a doula was that it needs to be a two-way thing and the times when I've worked with women who perhaps I haven't felt completely connected with it hasn't worked out as well as with those women who it's kind of definitely a two-way connection. So it sounds like you've learned that um, if if you've not quite clicked, then it's actually better for the mother to have a different doula. Yeah, definitely. Because I think when I first became a doula, I just I had this idea that all doulas would kind of work in a similar way to me, would have similar viewpoints about birth and women. And actually, we're all very different. And, and in some ways, that's a positive thing because, you know, women are all very different. And that means that if I'm not the right doula the chances are there's going to be someone else who is better placed to be that person's doula. Mm, so it's not all about you getting the work it's more about getting the right outcome. Yeah because I think when someone decides that they want the support of a doula they're looking for something specific some kind of specific support and it wouldn't be fair of me to pretend that I could fit that mould if I, if I knew that I couldn't really because of that lack of connection. Because it really is all about the connection and the trusting relationship. Yeah. And I think, you know, often there is a bit of doing and doing more practical things, but that tends to be a sideline for the relationship, really, that you build up with a with a woman throughout a pregnancy. So where do you go from there once you've decided to work together? I have sort of formal things. I take a deposit and I work with a contract. Um, but after that sorted... I leave it completely up to the woman then to decide how often she wants to meet me, when she wants to meet me, and we kind of go from there, really. Then the birth approaches, and what happens? Usually from when someone's 38 weeks, but it completely depends on their circumstances. Um, but usually from 38 weeks, that's when I go on call. So have my doula bag packed, my childcare arrangements all sorted, and don't stray too far from home, and just ready for when they go into labour and would like my support. Is that exciting for you or difficult? Or? It's a bit of a mixture. I find it quite stressful being on call. Just I'm a single parent and I have two young children. And so that side of it is a little bit stressful. I have good support from my family. I know that my parents are always there for me to drop the children around when I get the call day or night. So that aspect of it is 
slightly difficult and challenging but exciting too I think um so much of the work that I do with women is during the pregnancy and to then be able to be there for the birth and to support them through that last bit is really special yeah that that must be the best reward for all the the work and the waiting yeah so how many births have you been at um I'm not sure off the top of my head I don't keep count (laughs) okay I've been a doula since for about two and a half years um it was quite quite slow in the beginning to kind of find clients and I'm in Manchester and there aren't that many doulas sort of in the northwest and I think half of the job is sharing about what doulas do and most of the people I meet when they ask what I do for a job and I say that I'm a doula they have no idea what that is so I think half of the work is kind of spreading the word about doulas and letting women know and people know generally that that support is available. That would be interesting um, thing to talk about because a lot of the people listening to this broadcast are midwives. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes if midwives would be good people to advocate for the services of a doula, not necessarily to be kind of advertising one particular person, but to be saying to women, um, actually, I think it would be really useful for you to consider having a doula. Yeah, definitely. I think and a lot of the births that I've been to with midwives, the midwives never worked with a doula before, even though often they've been a midwife for quite a number of years. So it'd be beneficial, I think, to try and connect more with midwives and to kind of have a more of a mutual relationship, I think. So what would you want to say to midwives about doulas? I think the main thing is that doulas don't want to, doulas aren't women who want wish they could be a midwife. And actually, we kind of all want the same thing we want a woman to have the birth that she hopes for and has planned for and we want to to feel supported and to work together to do that really I think sometimes people get the idea that as a doula you kind of want to take over the role of the midwife and actually it's about working alongside the midwife so the woman feels has the best team of support around her I sometimes get the impression that some midwives might feel a little bit threatened by the presence of a doula. Yeah, and I think sometimes because you've had the opportunity to build up the relationship with that woman, there are times during a birth when there are particular things that the woman would prefer her doula to do for her rather than her midwife. And I think that can kind of make a midwife sometimes feel a bit pushed to the sidelines. But ultimately, if we're all there to support the woman and what her needs are and what her wants are, it's about putting our own kind of needs to one side and accepting that, okay, I'd ro- I, it would be nice if I could do that for the, for the woman, but she wants someone else to do that, and that's okay. And there must be some benefits for midwives as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't envy midwives. They have a huge workload. I think the times when I've been at births and just even the amount of paperwork they have to do, I think they, they work incredibly hard. And I just think to have somebody else there who can kind of work with you and to support you as well is a positive thing. Yeah, I must say I've been at one birth as a doula and the midwives were completely respectful and lovely to work with, but they mostly just left us alone and I think that's because there was a doula. Yeah. And it worked really well for the woman because she didn't get a lot of interruptions. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what most women want from their birth, to be trusted, that they know what's best for their baby, that they know what their bodies need and to be left alone to do that and there's some evidence I know NICE actually recognizes the evidence that doulas improve outcomes yeah it was really exciting to kind of read something official kind of supporting what we do um, because it's often seen as a bit of a I don't know a hippie thing that middle class 
women only kind of go for and it doesn't actually kind of make a difference but to see something that shows that it really does improve outcomes is exciting yeah brilliant where can people find out about you and your manchester collective um so we have a website greatermanchesterdoulas.com and we're on facebook and instagram so yeah brilliant thank you very much it's been really nice to talk to you lauren thank you doulas karen Mm. Certainly, uh, you know, I've been aware of doulas for a long time. Uh, a lot of my male clients, the first they ever heard of a doula was when their partner wanted one. Um, but I have concerns, not just about doulaing, you know, but, but in some ways about midwifery. You know, if you, if you look at how doulaing has evolved, it, it, the long and the short of it is, it's a woman being with another woman when she gives birth, right? Right. So the only qualification you need is to be a woman, right? It, yes and no. I'm not sure I would agree with including midwives in that because midwives do have specialist knowledge. Yeah, well, I'm a bit. It's a bit, it's a bit dodgy for me to say all you need to be a midwife is to be a woman, isn't it? No, no I wouldn't necessarily include uh, midwives in that. But I, was, I wasn't saying on. that a midwife needs to be a woman. I was no, saying I that a midwife isn't just a woman. No. Well, I'm a man. Especially not in your case. (laughs) I agree with you. I guess where I'm coming from is that this kind of, there's almost like this over-professionalising what is effectively some some just core skills, right? Yeah. Uh, Core skills that should have embedded in them kindness. Yes, absolutely. So if a woman can... Um, choose a a relative or a friend or you know a sister or something like that and she can be very confident that that person has those skills that she'll find helpful during labour that's absolutely fair enough and no qualifications needed but I think perhaps the advantage of a doula having some training is that they'll have done a bit of debriefing of their own experiences so they're not bringing that baggage into the birth room I get that they've developed some listening skills they've got some sound knowledge and probably and I think this might be one of the most valuable things they're probably part of some community either online or in person where they're learning all the time from other women no I get that and and I suppose it's the in a way it's a symptom of our fragmented society where the nuclear family has shrunk you know and where birth in the main has been exported to a sort of like an industrial type model You know, so in the old days, I guess, you know, you would have a network of family and friends around you who would offer you that kind of support if you wanted it. Well, yes. And in that situation, you'd have been probably birthing at home with those women around you anyway. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a client the other day, had an experience that she calls traumatic. And um, she highlighted one member of staff that, that, that made the difference because she was extraordinarily kind. And uh, it just made me think, why are people standing out because they're kind? Shouldn't, shouldn't everyone in the work that we do have kindness embedded in their very psyche? It should be fundamental. Oh, God, it should be part of the... You, I don't know about a maths test to become a midwife. You should have a, a kindness test. I don't know. But even the, the kindest person in the world is going to have, you know, working under pressure and, you know, the... the the worries about litigation and covering your back and having lots of paperwork and hospital protocols and and limited time and so many women to look at. I don't know. 
that no, I could, get that. That could make me feel less kind. Yeah, well, I've I've been there. You know, I've I've been on a, a label board juggling three or four women, intermittently auscultating between the rooms, and yet at the time feeling this tension inside that is desperate to offer people all that I can give, but the institution itself is working against me. So I get that point. I, I just think, it, I, you know, the idea that we have to put kindness in a, in a policy, I, I just think is is a, a sad reflection at times you know did you ever as a midwife have a doula at birth uh, a few times yeah over the 23 years yeah a few times and how was that well I always considered a doula an asset so for me if there was a doula in the room that was fantastic there was no element of me feeling threatened or or under pressure I, I just embraced them as a colleague and as someone who was offering me a resource as, as a midwife so never had a poor experience no and did you feel that that did make a difference with outcomes oh without a doubt oh in my anecdotally I mean I say anecdotally of course all the evidence there's a load of evidence that speaks about continuity of carer and of course a doula is a, a is a continuous presence of a trusted friend in the room by definition yeah so when I'm bloody spinning plates the doula is a is a reassuring presence that doesn't yeah. go anywhere you know our system would do well from you know having doulas available everywhere NHS-based doulas, I don't know. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? And I wonder if that in itself might sometimes feel threatening to midwives that, that they're suggesting that, you know, people with fewer qualifications and less training and, yeah, it is, it's a different being, isn't it? As a person who has, you know, been a midwife for a long time, uh, you know, the, the way a doula responds in the room is very much the way that I would be responding in the room had I not, all the other commitments to maintain mm. you know the 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 contemporaneous note keeping the um the looking after more than one woman at a time all of that stuff you know i i would be responding uh, as a doula does you know yeah. um so i think midwives get concerned about the shrinking of their role you know yeah that's that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Uh, maternity assistants, you know, now do, you know, blood sugars. They do um, blood spot tests on the fifth day. So uh, it, if we're not careful, it's about getting maternity services on the cheap. Yeah. And that's what I would be wary of. Oh, God. And I think we should be, be very careful of it. You know, the you look at the history of nursing. You know, nurses took on roles to free up the doctors. You know, there was a time when nurses didn't do blood pressures and all this kind of stuff ages ago. And bit by bit, the nurse has taken on extended role, which is really the off-casted role, the, the kind of roles that the doctors would prefer not to do. And it's good to upskill nurses and have people with this whole range of you know, different things that they can do. It, it is good. But the argument, I, I, I've, I'm a nurse and a midwife, but the argument I always made for midwifery was that there was a very distinct boundary around what constituted midwif midwifery practice. You know, it's very distinct, enshrined in law. And the minute we start taking on too many extended roles that really reflect us easing the load for doctors is that we blur the edge of what makes a midwife a midwife and, and I think that's a slippery slope hmm. do, you, do you know what I mean if I wanted to be a doctor I would have been a doctor simple as that 
you, you would prefer to see the roles defined oh god completely defined yeah I, so that we so that as a professional you know the boundaries of my profession are clear to me and uh, I think that's that's quite important. I, I think midwifery education is better suited within the arts department of universities than it is within the sciences. It's usually a BSc. Right. Well, there you go. I'll tell you why. Because the power structures are so influenced by the patriarchy and the idea that the scientific model is the be-all and the end-all. Uh, we're missing the point. Midwifery historically has been more of an art than a science. And... Uh, Anyway, just my opinion, right? Well, that will all be stopped when we smash the patriarchy, won't it? Yeah, smash the patriarchy. What about a birth photographer? Have you ever had a, a photographer at the birth? Uh, I have on a number of occasions. And how was that? That's okay. I, I, I mean, usually, the, the, on the two occasions, they were both skilled documentarians. You know, so the, the idea of being discreetly in the room was very important to them. Um, but it does raise some questions. Michel O'Don would be turning in his grave. Oh, but he's not dead. Is, is he? he? Yeah, I was going to say. No, he's not dead. Oh, God. You might have to edit that. You never know. It might have been a scoop. But um, he would he would be very upset, wouldn't he? Mm. Well, the whole idea of birth being observed, surely having a photographer in the room is 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 quintessential observation, isn't it? That's absolutely right. Yeah, it is. It's very much being observed but that was one of the things I was trying to get at when I was speaking to Joe. so um, the idea that is she kind of breaking that privacy that people need in birth and the, the quiet and the, the, the safety and those sorts of things and and a lot of people would feel certainly initially on, on first thinking about it having somebody there snapping away but I don't feel like that's what she does from talking to her. By definition, Karen, I suppose if someone is employed to do it, they want it, right? Yeah, and they know her by the time they do it, as she says. So I came across Jo in her photographs um, are featured in Juno magazine. Really, really beautiful black and white pictures of, from births. Oh, let's hear her. I'm Jo. Jo Robertson, I'm the birth photographer at Lillian Cray's Birth Photography and I document women's labours, birth and postpartum. Lovely, thank you. Thank you for um, agreeing to have a chat with us. We just wanted to find out a little bit more about what a birth photographer does uh, in, in addition to kind of what it says on the tin uh, <laughs> and who has people photo their birth and why? I'm hired to come and document women during early stages of labour actual birth and then up to two hours postpartum. I document quietly and unobtrusively in the background and try to record moments as they unfold naturally. Uh, I work around um, birthing partners, I record support network that you have with you, I take on births that are at home, at hospital, birthing centres, um, so I cover a, a variety of different births. Okay, so there isn't a a particular setting where it's more likely to have a photographer? No, not a particular setting at all. I kind of if if somebody would like their birth documented, regardless of where they choose to have their their birth, I I, I will come along and, and document it for them. Right. And I guess that's something that you'd you'd then kind of have in an album as a as a memory of an amazing day. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I photograph and give my clients between 50 and 65 images. I edit them right down to the very best images that I captured of the day and present it to them then in an album. So it's like a, a storybook, if you like, of the day that they gave birth. That's wonderful. What a brilliant thing to have. Because mm. we all remember our birth. Yeah, well... It, it's strange you say that because a lot of the times, um, a lot of the women, when they get their albums, they go through it and there's a lot of elements that they, they've forgotten, actually. <laughs> and so the book brings back a lot of things that were missing from their birth for them. And it's a lovely insight for for them to see who was supporting them or how they were being supported or how their partners looked in particular <laughs> when they were supporting them. And it's all capturing all the firsts as well. When you see your baby for the first time or when you reach down and you can feel your baby's head and you know that birth is, is on its way. And um, or when you um, feel skin to skin with your, your baby. Do you get to experience that with the people when you present the album? Do you kind of do they go through it while you're there? They go through it, yeah. It's one of my favourite times, actually, because they, they get quite emotional when, they, when they're going through them and they take their time. They really look at each individual image and just absorb it all. And it, I'd say nine times out of ten, they, they end up crying, you know, it, at, for joy, <laughs> you know, because you're, you're giving them something that they're reliving. And usually I give the work to them within seven to ten days. So it's quite early on after birth as well. So they're still kind of loved up and full of oxytocin still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that you would do it more with people having second or subsequent? The majority of the women that I have done have been first-time mums and um, and a lot of second-time mums that I've worked with have always wished that they'd known about me or heard about it for their first as well. So it, it does vary. I've had third-time mums as well. The reason I ask is because when I have an antenatal group and we're talking mm -hmm. about birth and who might be in the room, and yeah. I pretty much always say, oh, you might have a photographer there. Yeah, I'll um, do. Sometimes because I've got your photos from Juno magazine in the session. And I would say that I'm almost universally met by looks of horror. <laughs> Why yeah. would we have a photographer there? Yeah, I think it's, it's still a very, very new concept. For us here in the UK, I, I get a lot of that kind of, you know, why would you have anybody that you or a stranger in the room, particularly a stranger with a with a camera? You know, why would you want that? Um, and a lot of people don't realise that the time I spend with my clients before their actual birth and the relationship I build with them by the time I get to their birth, that they know me very, very well. And I'm more of a, a friend with the camera than I am just a photographer with the camera. And that's really important to me to build that relationship and that bond going, not just with the birthing mother, but with the partner as well. So how do you build that relationship? Through lots of contact, lots of communication, lots of meeting ups, coffee, cake eating, <laughs> uh, and just generally being interested in how their pregnancy is going. I do offer free maternity sessions as well with all my births so that the, the women get used to to see me with a camera as well um, so that it's not too strange when I come to photograph their birth so that sort of all helps so you've already photographed them yeah yeah and they've already you know like what I've produced they like my style and um, and things as well and they, I suppose they just feel confident in my abilities then to capture their birth 
It feels like such a lovely thing to do. Oh, it's it's wonderful. I love it so, so much. And I feel <laughs> it's it's an absolute privilege when they say, yes, you know, we want to book you. And, and then I get the go ahead to, to go. I love it. I'm actually on call next month now, so I can't wait for... Of course, you would have to be on call, wouldn't you? Yes, yeah. How How is that? It's okay. I don't mind. Um, I'm, I go on call from 38 weeks until they have their baby. I, you know, sleep with my phone at the loudest volume possible, very like a doula, I guess, and just wait for that call. Usually all my family knows I'm on call, so they're sort of on call as well, if you like, because I have children of my own. So um, everybody's there ready to kind of just grab everything if I've got to go. So it's really good as well. So, Joe, how do people find out about you? Um, where are you online? Um, they can. I'm on Facebook. I'm Lillian Cray, South Wales birth photographer, or I'm on Instagram, South Wales birth photographer. I exclusively fo- um, publish all my photography on Instagram, and I've got a website, lcraysbirthphotography.co.uk. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for finding some time at very short notice to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. You're welcome. Right. So, Karen, what's in the news? Well, we've got a little bit of news from Birthrights, who is Sprogcast's mm. or who are Sprogcast's preferred charity, that the lovely, lovely, lovely Rebecca Schiller has moved on from being the chief executive. She still remains with them as a trustee. And their new chief executive, Amy Gibbs, has been appointed. Um, and I think she starts at the end of November. And she's got a, a background in health and human rights campaigning. So good luck to Amy. We just thought we'd like to mention that. Yeah, good luck to Amy. Good luck to Rebecca. And maybe Amy will come and talk to us sometime. Soon, I'm hoping, because it'd be good to hear from her to uh, get a sense of what her vision is. There's there's certainly enough work for birthrights, isn't there? Yeah. What else have we got? Um, there was a really interesting new study from Queen's University in Belfast. Researchers doing a very large cohort long-term follow-up type study, um, finding that adults who were breastfed as babies earn more money. Oh, that clinches it then. <laughs> what was it? Nineteen fifty-eight. They started this study, and what nine thousand participants track? Yeah, so that's a very, very big cohort, and we've linked it on Facebook. We we linked the press release from Queens, but if you click through that to the PDF of the preliminary findings, it does talk quite a lot about their methodology and how they've excluded. Um, a lot of confounding factors because obviously that's always going to be the big issue with a study like this. Um, but they also put very nicely the case for examining this one particular aspect, the fact that if breastfeeding in Northern Ireland was to increase, then it would have a substantial impact on the economy. Yeah, well, it's undeniable, isn't it? it, it it's undeniable if you take the premise of the study Right. You know, I, I, I guess what 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 the, the, the assumption is that if you breastfeed, um, your baby is going to be in a position to earn more money. And I'm assuming that's because uh, they're more intelligent. I don't know. What is that? What is that? What it doesn't um, in this document specify a causal route whereby that 
breastfeeding makes that baby. But it's it's not talking about individual babies, is it? It's talking about a large population. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what do you think? Uh, you think it's an important study? I think it is because it's. There's, you know, I mean, I haven't seen the nitty gritty yet, but uh, just just the sheer size of it, and it it looks as though they've gone into this with very broad outcomes that they're looking at and this is one of the things that's come out of it yeah no i i don't know what to make of it i i i i, I think my initial reaction is uh i want to read more i want to read the actual uh document which i i shall do and then feeling a little bit jaded about how this will be reported in the media Yes, and actually, I've not seen it picked <sighs> up in the media, which is nice, but that might just be because I've had <laughs> no time. To you can imagine it, can't you? Breastfeed your baby, and you, they'll end up getting on the property ladder sooner. Well, the, that's the thing, isn't it? It's so difficult to discuss this without people's buttons being pushed. And actually, yeah, my mine are pushed because it, it, it kind of, yeah, it, it kind of for me, it, it's like assuming that economies should always grow. Yeah, you know, who says? <laughs> well, it would be nice if people don't have to live in poverty. No, I get that, but the, the, the assumption that in order for a society to, you know, to thrive, it has to grow economically, is an assumption that we've had for many, many, many years, and maybe we're it's time for a new day. You, you know, maybe a growth by definition cannot go on without any end. You know, the law of enth entropy, uh, is that right, the right word? Yeah, demands that it, 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 it's not sustainable. So, you know, having uh, financial outcomes, measuring financial outcomes in the context of breastfeeding just sounds, I don't know, uh, nonsensical. But I, I get your point. It would be good for the economy if more babies were breastfed. That, that will be the headline. But that's the thing that they can use they can use a study like this that's it's looks like it's been robustly done it's got a, a it, it puts a financial value on the outcome and it's not about saying to individual families if you breastfeed your baby will earn more by the time they're 50 it's about saying to governments this will make a difference to the economy you need to invest more in supporting breastfeeding and i get that perspective but that's not how it'd be reported well no it never is is it it won't be will it 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 won't be and and you know i i often at conferences will say you know at 12 months in terms of longevity we have the worst breastfeeding rates in in the world i i, I think that's still the case um but that to, to quote that's a bit disingenuous isn't it right. because well because of the because of the structures and the society we live in. There aren't many families out there, there aren't many couples out there that can sustain their household on one wage. Why do you have to have one wage? Well, breastfeeding and going back to work is entirely compatible. It is compatible, but not bloody easy. And and, and I would say it's it's the pressures, financial pressures upon couples that are leading to us having the lowest breastfeeding rates at 12 months i don't because agree it, with you that it's not easy to go back to work when you're breastfeeding uh, it, it would be okay. if you were talking about a three-month-old baby but most people are going back to work a little later than that okay whether they well I, or I, not. I i and i'm maybe talking from a jaundiced perspective because i worked in a secure psychiatric hospital for a while as a general nurse and we had a psychiatric nurse come back to work uh after you know having had a baby and i'm not sure how long she was off 
and uh, she was having she was going having special times to go and pump right you know to express rather and uh the amount of kind of gossipy snidey remarks about is this her break time she's a long time away from the work area you know ended up with this this woman you know deciding not to return to work at that place you know she she was definitely put in a position where it was difficult for her to maintain um her expressing regime and i don't i don't think that's isolated karen no, i, think, I don't it's, think it's isolated but i think that there are many many complex things that are difficult about going back to work when you've had a baby and i don't think that and absolutely it shouldn't be the case that somebody can't make that decision because of the way people behave around her and i can remember somebody objecting to me storing expressed milk in the fridge because they might accidentally put it in their tea which i personally thought would probably do them good all these things are about education aren't they at one level about learning you know, I, I, how many more studies do we need about breastfeeding? God, we get it. We are well, ma- enough we're for mammals. Us not to have the lowest breastfeeding weight rates in the world. Perhaps. No, I get it, but but it's not going to be giving of more information and evidence that changes what's happening. No, but again, because this is this is something that you can take to government and you can take to policymakers. That's where the change needs to happen. Yeah. So just before we move on, I wanted to mention that the new Baby Milk Action calendar is out. So Ooh. this is um, something that you can buy just to su- to support Baby Milk Action. They're a non-profit organisation that aim to save lives and end the avoidable suffering caused by inappropriate infant feeding. And they campaign on all kinds of um, platforms across the world. Um, but quite a lot of antenatal practitioners use the pictures in um, their work. So it's there. You can go and buy it from babymilkaction.org. Nice, go and buy it's something. Something you can actually do, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's that. Yeah, something you can do. Use your arms and legs and voice box and do something. Anyway, I think after that, it would be nice to sit down with a cup of tea and some fiction. So, shall we listen to Ellie? Oh, go on then. So here's Ellie Durant talking about her new book, which is called called New Walk. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for um, agreeing to be interviewed. I do appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Always lovely to talk to you, Mark. Uh, Thank you. And could you start off by just tell us a little bit about your bio? I was obsessed with books when I was a kid. Um, I used to go into Waterstones when I was 16, 17 and get May's midwifery off the shelf and read a bit in their coffee shop and then put the bookmark back in and then put it back on the shelf again because it was a very expensive book. And then um, I was a healthcare assistant for a bit when I was um, studying my A-levels. I trained as a midwife in Leicester and that was fantastic. Um, very multicultural place, very highly recommended university, De Montfort. Um, And then I qualified, worked in Peterborough for a little bit. Um, And then I moved to New Zealand and I did a couple of years there and that was great. Working as a midwife there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In New Zealand. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, And then I started the blog when I went to New Zealand. So this is Midwife Diaries and it just started to get a bit busier Um, And I was writing the novel in the background. I was just doing an hour a day around all of the shift work and 
starting to run a blog and a small business. Um, and I decided to take a year off to see whether I could build Midwife Diaries into a bit of a business. I thought I was young and foolish enough to have a go. And um, yeah, then recently finished the novel, was astounded to get it accepted by Pinter and Martin and um, New York the novel about Chloe the student midwife comes out next month. Oh, it's not out yet? No, not out yet. You've read it. I'll tell you my foray into your book. Obviously, I've got particular interest because we're friends. And, yeah. and, and also, I live in Leicester. Indeed, yeah. So it's great to be reading a book where all the landmarks I know. <laughs> it, it, it makes reading the book I think I think Chloe and her boyfriend live on the Narber Road don't they yeah yeah um Leicester's great Leicester's very I, I think it's a really good example of a city where lots of people from different backgrounds get on yeah um, I think it's set to be the one of the world's first plural cities pretty soon so there'll be no ethnic minority it's just a I, I think we're close to that already yeah, yeah. Wouldn't be surprised. What what initially prompted you to even want to write fiction, and particularly fiction that's kind of focused on your experience of uh, being a student midwife? And of course, I've got to ask, how much of it is biographical? Yeah, it's not actually. It's not. <laughs> it's not an autobiography at all. I mean, Chloe has some very difficult social issues in her life, and those certainly aren't mine. Um, I've always wanted to write. I've always had something on the go um, from when I was tiny and my dad's always been whispering in my ear, so that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Writing a book would be a nice thing to do. Do you think you should? Oh, that's lovely. But so, he's very yeah. proud. Well, it's, it's, um, it's sort of very bizarre because when I look at the book, I can sort of see through a tunnel in time looking at me when I was about five or six thinking it might be nice to write a book. All of those kind what? of reasons, really. I like writing for writing's sake, and I was always yeah. going to finish. This is a three-part series. So there's going to be two more books with yeah. Chloe as the protagonist? That's the one, yeah. Um, so I'm in the middle of writing book two, and uh, yeah, I was always going to finish them, regardless of whether they got published or not. So you say it's not autobiographical, and I believe you. Yeah. Uh, but so, so obviously... I, I, I find it hard to believe that some of Chloe's experiences as she trains as a midwife don't have some, um, obviously all the characters are fictional. Yeah. But, but yeah. doesn't have some basis in your experience. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, being a student midwife, I wasn't convinced there was a book out there that described the modern experience of training in the NHS. And it's certainly you know, <laughs> hold on to your hat kind of territory. Um, yeah. yeah, it is extremely intense training as a student midwife. And of course, my own experiences and those of other people I know yeah. um, have, have sort of made it in there. But it's not, there's no particular event that happened. It's just no. a big, um, it's, it's sort of like midwifery stock, but you can't recognise the individual ingredients. That's no, I get that. Writing it is is very um, sort of gripping for me. It's it's really good fun. Even when it was awful, it was always brilliant, if that makes any sense. When you write a novel, the key thing you have to do is bring uh, sort of controversy and stress to the scenes because it's what makes you hang on. 
as a reader if you're just reading something that's really you know bland everyday life you don't you don't sort of get hooked in it and the thing about midwifery is it is so interesting like there is no element of midwifery there's no appointment that you've ever had with someone right that's been boring because you just borrow their world for a bit you get to it's like a little vignette almost you get to dip into what they're feeling and I think as somebody you know I always wanted to be a writer and as somebody who but I never thought it would ever happen and I thought well I'll do something useful I'll do something interesting and then I got obsessed with birth because I was reading all these books about um you know these great great fictional books um and all of the best bits were always (laughs) when people were having were having their babies it was always these really pivotal moments I think that good good writing enables us to identify with the characters within it. Yeah. It's almost like a mirror to a certain extent. So I, I, I begin to see something of my own experience of life in the writing. Yeah. Even if you're a very young person, so Chloe in there is 18, and yeah. um, there was a lot of me that was going, well, who's going to want to read about an 18-year-old? Come on, what do they know? What do they have to... And A, that's very arrogant, because 18-year-olds have a lot of wisdom that perhaps 25-year-olds, 35-year-olds don't have access to anymore. But also sure. just that freshness of being in a in a new system in the NHS. and Yeah, and, and she's... I mean, she's 18, but she's mothering her older sister. She is. Oh, Chloe. Yeah, she. <laughs> she? One. I, I've read enough to know that she's carrying a bit of personal weight. Yeah. You know, in terms of the responsibilities that she feels. To, I don't want to do any spoilers because we want people sure. to read this book. Yeah. But, you know, she's she's kind of she's kind of mothering her older sister. She's she feels responsibility to her father, who's obviously grieving. Yeah. She's got a lot on her plate, right? She has, yeah. She's, she's, um, but I think uh, what, what I have in my head is perhaps Chloe needs to learn how to put down some of the responsibilities that aren't hers. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think that's one of, the, one of the issues she probably needs to work through. This is the weirdest thing, by the way, because I, um, I got into a conversation with the person who's doing the editing, the editor from Pinter and Martin, who's brilliant. And um, she was saying, Danny, Chloe's dad, I'm not sure he'd be listening to this band because he's not from the right era, but I think he probably would be listening to Pink Floyd and blah, blah, blah. And, I was, and we were in this really in-depth conversation about it. And then I suddenly realised that I'd made this person up. <laughs> like, it's complete... <laughs> It's like having a like my old psychotic episode or something. I can see him, like I know him really well. Um, yeah. So you know, completely crackers. Do you have a sense of where it's going, or does the narrative almost occur? Um, no, I'm really, I'm really plot driven. Um, I don't think you know. I've got an awful lot to learn as a writer. It's a first novel, but I knew the whole three books worth. I knew where it was headed. And I wow. knew the basic outline right from the beginning. Um, how? Did you dream it? What? What? How did you? I have read an awful lot of books obsessively. Yeah. And so you get a feeling about what plot is supposed to be. And I think there's a huge amount to learn about plot, frankly, but um, it's really hard to do. But um, I knew sort of the bits 
where you had to have spikes of interest and where things had to come together. And then what I do is, um, if you could see the back of my wardrobe door right now, I've got little pictures for pretty much every scene and it's all ordered for book two. And that's what I did for the first one as well. So it all gets... It all gets posted out and then I write it backwards. I write the very last bit first and then I write Ooh. it backwards for some reason, but it works. Well, that's a bit like, um, uh, what's his name? Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, is that right? Apparently that's part of his, uh, was part of his process. He would start with the ending. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's quite common because you can get stuck at the, f you can get stuck making the first bit perfect is the problem. And tell me, do you, do you approach your writing uh, like a job? Do you say, right, I'm going to write this amount today or for this amount of time? Yeah, um, I always do an hour a day. It's religious and it's more for my mental health than anything else. It would be, um, you know, I have to do a bit of exercise and I have to do a bit of writing and then I'm on a level for having an all right day. <laughs> so, right thing but also I have a oh this is going to sound so weird Mark um so if you know anything about Elizabeth Gilbert she's a fantastic author who wrote she's most famous for Eat Pray Love but that yeah. is is sort of seen as a bit of a chick flick but she's written yeah. extraordinary things like the signature of all things is a 18th century explore, exploration of botany and female sexuality of that era it's just an astounding book but she says um when she starts writing she has a contract with the idea and she has to keep showing up for the idea and if she doesn't show up then she has sort of betrayed the idea and why on earth should she be able to write the book and mm. although I don't believe that on a spiritual level she literally believes in the magic of the idea has settled in her brain and she needs wow. to do the hours to be able to retrieve the book from almost another world. Like she literally believes this to be the case. Very but cool. I can see where she's coming from. And for me, that's always a very useful thought experiment. Yeah. Uh, to say, so if the idea was a real living thing, what would it want me to do today? Um, yeah. So I do that. But yeah, you have to sit there even when it's awful and you don't know what you're doing um, for an hour a day. Otherwise it never gets done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, not wanting to uh, be a spoiler because... Uh, people are going to want to buy the book and read it. It's hard not to uh, see how this book could be valuable to someone who's thinking of going into midwifery. It, it certainly doesn't sugarcoat things. Yeah. You know, and and uh, we've all met a Karen. <laughs> yeah. For those, you know, you've not read the book yet. Karen's a particular midwife who behaves in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, I think we can say that every book needs a villain and Karen is probably the villain. Yeah, but there's a lovely bit when you're supporting Sadie, who's a young, uh, I say a young woman who you meet at an antenatal class that you're volunteering at. Yeah. And you go into the home from home, which is a blast from the past for me because I started yeah. training in the home from home. Really? Yeah, when they had Ooh. pine beds, um, wow. you know, and all the rest of it. And there's a bit where... Uh, Karen wants to do wants to break waters or something like that yeah and um, she's obviously moving too quick for Sadie yeah uh, and you, you you know you quite so not you Chloe you know quite assertively asks her to slow down and then gets a, um, a flannel for Sadie's head and breathes with her 
yeah it's really it's really good stuff yeah i mean um i like to read about brave characters mm. i think we all do and i wanted chloe to be the bravest student midwife i could possibly write about and yeah. when your mentor is being assertive in a way that you think is wrong and you want to stand up for the women you know you you have to be very courageous and and certainly chloe does that um and i think i mean i I haven't sugarcoated it at all um i think that midwifery is a really hard job but the nice thing about it is chloe is um I mean, you get high off birth, really, sometimes, don't you? I do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's the side of the coin. So for Chloe, she knows, having the privilege of knowing exactly what you want to be doing with your life at 18 and getting to do it, I mean, she can't think of anything better. She's just, she, she just loves it. She just wants to be with the women. She wants to be... And she's been raised to do that as well. So her mum was a midwife. Her mum was a midwife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just before we finish up, have you got a timeline for when the next books will be coming out? Yeah. Um, well, as soon as I possibly can, um, I will get it done. I'm about 14,000 words through, but that doesn't mean anything really. Um, you know, that will be a first draft once it's done. All, all I can say is that Pinter and Martin are quite keen <laughs> for it to be done. So I'll get it. That's what I like about them. Yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot coming in the next book. I want to explore, because it's brilliant, I get to explore all of the issues I'm most interested in. So, for instance, um, what it's like to be a modern Muslim after after 9-11 in Leicester. Um, What it's like to be a white woman marrying into a family with Pakistani heritage. That's yeah. quite um, something I haven't seen explored in fiction before. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on in that next book um, in terms of how independent midwifery fits into the NHS. Just, nice just one. Lots of things, lots of things that I'm fascinated by and Chloe's fascinated by. And of course, as well, she's 18, going on 19. So there's going to be all the drama that comes with, I don't know anybody who hasn't got a dramatic life, eh? <laughs> Ellie, thanks for the book because you know I I get to access quite a lot of birth books these days, or or books with a birth emphasis, and your book uh, is unique among them. So thanks for writing it, and, and thanks for being willing to uh, be interviewed. Could you just give everyone a summary of where they can find you? Sure. Yeah, midwifediaries.com and on Facebook. The Secret Community for Midwives in the Making and the book is called New Walk. It's out on the 18th of October um, and you can find it on Amazon and Wordery and through Pinter and Martin, which is the publisher. Well, that was a nice interview, weren't it? That was nice, yes. And I don't do many. No, and it's always nice to hear you interviewing. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And uh, what I particularly liked and found interesting was that Ellie's very open about the fact that writing is her passion. Yeah. And it's one of a trilogy, so we've got more to look forward to. So what else has inspired you this month, Mark? Me? Well, um, I'm reading a book 
called Growing Up With Lucy. And the subtitle is How To Build An Android In 20 Easy Steps by Steve Grand. And it's an exploration of artificial intelligence. Okay. Um, but from the point of view of coming to an understanding of how uh, how mind emerges from the brain uh, and how our kind of mind works and i'm finding it very useful and interesting and it feeds nicely into the nlp neurolinguistic programming training that i conduct on a regular basis so i'm inspired by it so it's interesting and it fits with what you do yeah it, it's the kind of book i would read for fun uh but as i'm i know that sounds <laughs> strange because it's a bit geeky but it's the kind of book i'd read for fun but it feeds into my training as well so it's a double whammy for me so in enjoying it oh and one other thing yeah netflix is, is it called the queer eye i think it might be called the queer eye i'd need to check it's it's on netflix and it's a series as a five gay men uh who do makeovers on people and I saw one yesterday, it's a, a, a black man, gay man in America, in the south of America. And these guys came in and uh, he, this bloke wasn't out to his stepmother. And I wept and I wept and I wept. Just beautiful celebration of humans loving each other and connecting. And I, I'm really inspired by that episode in particular. Series one, episode two. What about you? One thing to mention is Rachel Reed's Why Induction Matters book literally just came through my front door. Have you got yours? Yeah, I got it today. Yeah, today. So um, that's available. A little bit fatter than your usual Why It Matter books, I notice. A little bit. And very nice colours. I like that. If you want a very nice coloured book this is the one to get um yeah. emma rosen who has been listening to broadcast for a long time sent me a copy of her self-published book called milk subtitled Ooh. a story of breastfeeding in a society that's forgotten how and it's her personal journey um interspersed with every other chapter being information and an, an examination or an exploration of the context of breastfeeding it's okay. actually referenced which makes it quite a good book because you can quote it and feel like you're being a bit academic. And it's just a really nice little book. So thanks, Emma. And I'll put where to find that on our Facebook. Oh, that's cool. So how are we doing? Have you got some names to read out? Um, just the one. As you say, things have slowed down a little bit on Patreon. So um, we're thanking Helen Morrison, who should have her badge by now, because I've definitely sent it. Hey, all you badge owners and T-shirt owners, come on. Post some pictures on the page. Yeah, we want to see them out there in, in yeah. the context of the real world. Did, did you see me at the Belfast uh, Positive Birth? I heard about it from my students. And I did, yes, I saw the picture. You had your T-shirt on. Yes! Well, what did your students say? Go on. They loved you, of course. Did they? Yes. They always Quite enjoyed it. They're a lovely bunch. It was Honestly, there were 250 people there. Which is quite an achievement. First ever positive birth conference in Northern Ireland. Big audience. Yes, really good reports came back from it. Yeah, it was. I, I, you know, I went out for a Guinness in the oldest pub in uh, Belfast with uh, with Sheena Byron, Millie Hill, and Paul Sheena's husband. Well done. And uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I got there at five thirty, planning to go home early, but twelve o'clock later. 
uh, we were eating kebabs. Very nice. <laughs> I have a lovely little noodle bar that I go to when I'm in Belfast. Because I've got to eat on my own in a hotel room. I don't want to go to the pub particularly. And it's a really nice place where I can get takeaway noodles. So that's my other endorsement. Cool. And I'm, I'm in Belfast a lot next year. So you never know. We might overlap. Yeah. Well, we'll take you for noodles at Obento. Let's do it. Oh, it's gone quick, Karen. No, it hasn't. <laughs> hasn't it? Oh, is that how it's felt for you? <laughs> Not in a well, bad way. I'm just uh, thinking, oh, we've got an awful lot for me to edit. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for today. So let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. That's facebook.com slash sprogcast and at sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, you could leave us a lovely review. And don't forget to check out Patreon. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code sprogcast at the checkout.